My name is Erin Macri, and I am a member of the BJSM editorial team. It is my pleasure today to introduce to you Dr. Ben Waller. Dr. Waller is the scientific chair of the Finnish Sport Physiotherapy Association and is also an adjunct professor at Reykjavik University and a lecturer for the International Aquatic Therapy Faculty. Prior to this, he was senior researcher at the University of Jyväskylä in Finland, where he also completed his PhD and postdoctoral work, which was all focused on uh, aquatics. So thank you for coming, Dr. Waller. Uh, thank you for the invitation. So perhaps before we dive in, Dr. Waller, we can start by sharing with the listener, particularly those who aren't super familiar with aquatic exercise, what exactly is aquatic exercise? So aquatic exercise, as defined by the WCPT, is the use of um, the mechanical and thermal characteristics of water during immersion in combination with the effects of movement to affect different systems in the body for health benefit. Okay. And so can you maybe go into what those sort of the properties of, of water are or those benefits that they are? Absolutely. So there is um, several different properties which we talk about all the time. So that's buoyancy. So that's when the lift of the water decreases the loading on the joints. Yep. And the weight of the of the person in the water. So if you're up to your neck in water, you only weigh 10% of your body weight, which is basically the weight of your head above the water. And then if you combine buoyancy with gravity, you get rotational forces, which is often called the metacentric effect, which is something those that work in Hallowick will know very well, something that I use as an early stage rehabilitation property. So it involves controlling the, the posture in the water. And then there is the hydrostatic pressure, which is the pressure exerted by the water on the body, and this increases the deeper you go. And this has several effects. Um, and through effects on the neurohumoral response, it decreases the sympathetic vasoconstriction, it reduces vascular resistance, and increases stroke volume, which directly decreases the heart rate. And that's commonly seen with people that do deep water running, that their heart rate just doesn't reach the same level as it does on land. And that's because of the um, hydrostatic pressure. Um, hydrostatic pressure itself is incorrectly being thought to stabilize joints. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stabilize the joints. Maybe through the decreased weight bearing, the muscles, the weak muscles have more ability to control the joints, but I don't believe that it improves the proprioception in its own and it doesn't create a biomechanical stability to the joint. So those are the two main ones that you hear about. Um, but my interest goes further. My interest is mainly into the viscosity and drag resistance of water. So that means that when a body moves through water, it is exposed to a resistance that is equal to its velocity and surface area. And this resistance increases as speed increases. And it doesn't stop. So in other words, the faster something moves through the water, the higher the resistance. And the slower an object moves through the water, the less resistance. Actually, the resistance of water is so great, it can stop bullets. Wow. You get, yeah, you can get, a, there's a pit, this video of a scientist standing in front of a gun firing a bullet at himself underwater. He's standing on about five meters away from the gun. Ooh. Yet the bullet stops about two meters in front of the end of the gun. That's incredible. I thought grant writing was stressful. When you go into the water, the, 
there, there is a decrease in proprioception and it doesn't improve with hydrostatic pressure. But when you move, it does. So there is, there is studies to show that joint positioning improves with active movement, but decreases with passive movement. So there's less joint proprioception during a passive movement in the water. So for me, it, it, it makes sense to always have an active movement if you're looking to affect any structure in the body, and especially if you're looking to affect the nervous system, the muscle, neuromuscular system in itself. So we really should be doing active movements and I think there should be, we should be erasing the profile of, of aquatic resistance training in, in rehab because aquatic exercise is only considered to be that light, buoyancy supported training, whereas it can be really quite hard training. So can I ask you then, um, having identified some of these limitations with how we have previously approached aquatic exercise, i.e. performing land-based exercises in the water, for example. Um, for your research, you took a different perspective and started looking at exercise training principles within the aquatic environment, and I guess that leads to where the resistance training came from. Can you sort of describe what that looks like? Yes, um, I think um, I would you know, go back to the late 90s where my colleague Tapani Pohanen um, was looking into the EMGs of the quadriceps and hamstrings during knee flexion extension underwater with and without boots. And, and some of these publications are now 17 years old, but he has been showing that with resistance, you can reach about 85% of your isokinetic muscle force, so muscle power, yeah. under the water with boots. But when you don't have boots, or you don't have that external resistance, so that's increasing that surface area, you reach only 30%. Right. So the importance of the external resistance has been around for 17 years. But right. I don't often see boots in swimming pools. I see floats. I see um, um, deep water running belts, which are very good equipment and very important equipment but they provide only a type of training that the external resistance does. Right. So these boots that you're talking about are like boots designed for the pool that increase surface area. Is that correct? That is correct. There's several different um, products out there at the moment. And we used in our research, the Hydratone boots, which I don't believe are any more available, but they were the biggest boots we could find. Okay. So that, are they weighted or is it just purely surface area that increases the resistance? Just the surface area and they are designed to increase the turbulence during movement and the turbulence creates even more resistance. So it's the surface area. So you're having to shift all that water as you kick forwards and water's pretty heavy. So you actually conducted a clinical trial investigating aquatic resistance training in women who have mild knee osteoarthritis. Can you tell me about that study? The question, can aquatic resistance training impact the uh, biochemical composition of knee cartilage, uh, um, was a second stage in a research line that Professor Ari Heinonen started in the um, about 10, 15 years ago, where he was looking at the impact of exercise, or osteogenic exercise, on women at risk of osteoporosis but also have OA symptoms. So he got funding from the Academia of Finland to create a four-month 
RCT study looking at the impact of aquatic resistance training in a group of women with mild knee osteoarthritis compared to usual care. It was an RCT study. These women we recruited did 16 weeks or three times a week, high intensity aquatic resistance training. Half an hour in the pool, reaching close to maximum heart rates of knee flexions, hip extensions. Primary outcome was the quantitative MRIs of a T2 and G-Gemric. So in those, we found a small change in the posterior region of the medial condyle. The T2 results go in a direction suggestive of a positive effect on the cartilage, whereas the degemeric was significant, but it was going in the suggested negative way. These changes contradict each other, but it was, we assume it's maybe an acute response, but we don't honestly know. We still don't know how cartilage responds to a four-month period of loading. And aside from the, uh, the actual changes in the joint itself, you took some secondary measures as well. Can you comment on those? Yes. So we looked at the bone mineral density and bone mineral content of the neck of femur. Again, unsurprisingly, so after four months of aquatic resistance training, we didn't find okay. any difference in that. But the second, other secondary outcomes of body composition, we found on average that the people participating lost 1.2 kilos of fat mass, which is actually larger than some studies that have had a six-month intervention with both exercise and dietary advice. Positively, there was no change in muscle mass, which would be considered negative in people with with knee osteoarthritis. And we also found an improvement in estimated VO2 um, using the two-kilometer walk test. And also they walked with less pain during that test. Surprisingly, we didn't see any changes in muscle strength using isometric knee extension flexion. But then we had a 12-month follow-up. And what we saw at the 12-month follow-up was that all outcomes returned to baseline. What they did report was that they couldn't find anybody willing to train them as hard as we had trained them. So they'd gone to the local leisure centres, gone to speak to physios to say, can you give me some instructions? And people were training them too light. And again, this comes down to the using water buoyancy in treatment of people with, say, knee osteoarthritis. It doesn't have to be light. So a take-home message is that we can work, we're working people a lot harder in the in an aquatic environment than we're currently doing. Yeah. Absolutely, and that was supported by the walking speed because I don't believe they had that. that the change in walking speed was maintained at 12-month follow-up. And it's the first time you can see a study with osteoarthritis and an aquatic therapy intervention where there's been a long-term effect. And this can't be down to biomechanical changes. They did not change their habits. So they weren't using any improved um, functional capacity after the intervention. I hypothesized that they felt that they could train harder and they were more confident to push themselves. And that was the key that we, uh, we didn't optimize after the intervention. So can I ask you a question then? Would you say that aquatic exercise is as effective as land-based exercise for managing osteoarthritis? I think it's as effective. It is an alternative training method to land. You often get people comparing the two and saying which one is better. And that really annoys me because they're completely different training modalities and should be treated as such. People will want to train in the water. 
some people will want to train on land. Knowing that you've got these different that have the equivalent effect is important. In the studies using aquatic resistance training, we have seen similar effects in people with early, late and post-op NEOA, so arthroplasty, and the, the, the results mirror the results achieved in the studies from the GLAD studies and the neuromuscular training for people with knee osteoarthritis. So in my opinion, they are equally as good, but they are different and can be used in parallel or individually. Um, and this, you know, I want to just ask this question because I noticed it when reading this, the research is that you specifically targeted women in this studies, but I'm also hearing you say that aquatic exercise is appropriate for athletes. And, and so I'm, is there some sort of a barrier to having everybody join the water or did you target women specifically because behaviorally they might accept the treatment better or? It's a very good question because you do see more women in aquatic fitness groups than men. Yeah. We didn't approach it in that way we wanted to control confounding factors and we know that osteoarthritis risk factors development is slightly different between males and females we controlled the the gender for and focused on females only i do have great difficulty convincing male customers to come into the pool initially uh-huh. um, because they do consider it being for older ladies and it's exactly the same with athletes so we want to shatter some perceptions here so we can get people doing more, be more actively engaged in the water. Absolutely. I mean, if, if, if it's good enough for Usain Bolt and Mo Farah, which are the examples I use to convince athletes to come into the pool. And then I do use the aquatic resistance equipment because it looks good. It feels good. They look like they can feel that they're doing some work and it doesn't look like the noodle throwing that a lot of people think aquatic aquatic exercise is where you use those colorful noodles. Once I get them in the pool, I show them how to use it. Most athletes are actually converts very quickly to the benefits. So what do you think the future of uh, aquatic exercise research looks like? Uh, is it that we need to reproduce some of these studies in men or is there some other sort of direction that you're wanting to take with your research? So firstly, at the moment, um, I want to quantify the work done during Uh, specifically aquatic resistance training and deep water running. And we are quantifying aquatic resistance training in terms of work done, external loads. So at the moment we've got a lot of good research going on there so we can actually be more specific with our exercise prescription. We're also looking at the aerobic loading because I believe that we should be applying in aquatic exercise swimming training technique so we're trying to quantify so we can give guidelines we're doing x training um research to actually quantify that to say hey this is how you train and this is how you get the best results from this training modality but i also think that there are some very exciting studies coming over about especially from japan dr sato is doing some great work on the effects of the on the brain immersion and i'm really interested in this about when you go into the pool, you do have much less pain. People feel less pain. But is that down to the deloading or is it down to the environment itself? There are suggestions that cerebral blood flow improves in the water. There are suggestions that motor learning and errors in cognitive tasks, my um, work done in, in Utah University with Adric Bressel, 
suggests that actually these are decreased. There's, the, there's less error and improved mode of control in, in the pool. So I think we're going to go central as well. I think we're going to get, I, mean, I think there's going to be some exciting stuff as well as just the exercise physiology and pure training. It's going to be stuff that we can start implementing with our patients with chronic pain and changing that view that aquatic exercise is just for those that can't train on, on land. Yeah, great. I really appreciate that um, a lot of the work is being done on actually finding out not just if it's effective, but what the mechanisms are. So that's really exciting. Well, is there anything else that you, final thoughts that you want to add for the listener today? When you go to the pool, there is the ability to reach higher levels of intensity. Push the people and don't just leave them to go to the pool on their own and assume that they know what they're doing. If you tell an athlete to go to the pool or somebody else to go to the pool on their own, they will float there. Use some of the references that we've got in this, uh, attached to this podcast and give them some specific training programs that you know will create an outcome. Great. And, uh, and work with them. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I guess before we um, close off, I know that you wanted to um, mention an upcoming conference that you're helping to organize. Do you want to mention that? Absolutely, yes. I am, as, as my role as the chair of the scientific committee for the Finnish Sports Physiotherapy Association, we run an international congress every year in Helsinki at the beginning of June. This year, our theme is the athlete's pain. We have some absolutely fantastic speakers coming this year. I am super excited. We have Kieran O'Sullivan from Ireland. We have Ebony Rio from Australia. We have Benjamin Smith from the UK. We have Claire Adern from, at the moment, Sweden, discussing the implementations of the recent advances in pain neuroscience and what does that mean for people that are active but also for elite athletes um great well thank you for coming dr waller and thank you the listener and i hope that you all have a physically active day